Hello and welcome to Meet the Producer. This is the new podcast series from the Production Guild of Great Britain, in which we get a unique insight into the careers and work of some inspirational producers. I'm Jason Solomons, film critic and presenter on TV and radio and in newspapers, now embarking on a new career as a film producer. So what better way, I thought, to start out than by asking some of the best in the business for advice. How do you start? Where does the money come from? How do you make deals for stars and attached directors? And what does a producer do all day? I'll ask a diverse collection of guests to understand how some of our favourite films and TV shows have come together. And we'll all find out more as I meet the producer. My guest on this show is Elizabeth Carlson, who, with her producing and life partner, Stephen Woolley, won the BAFTA for Outstanding Contribution to British Film in 2019. So we're talking about one of the most established producers in the UK, on the UK independent scene, whose achievements include Made in Dagenham, Their Finest, Great Expectations, The Crying Game, if we go back a bit, and the wonderful Todd Haynes movie, Carol. And there's plenty more on the horizon, as I discovered when I tracked down Elizabeth Carlson. Actually, full disclosure here, she lives round the corner from me, so I do bump into her quite often. I just bumped into her uh, on uh, the fields before, and I asked her if she fancied joining the series. Ah, that's my producer chutzpah already in action. I'm almost there. So she said yes, uh, and here she is in an official capacity. We all get to meet the producer. Because you've got a BAFTA for, uh, was it Outstanding Contribution to British Cinema? Is that what your BAFTA's for? Yes, it was. It was not lifetime achievement award it's very important to distinguish there were a few people who congratulated us and in error said lifetime achievement which is one everyone sort of wants but really doesn't want until <laughs> it's too late to get it <laughs> yeah i mean if you're like 85 you'll you'll take it yeah <laughs> yeah yeah but these days you wonder if even 85 year olds you know i think there were like two 84 year olds in Cannes competition this year right that's or at least true one. yeah skolomowski yeah he was 84 skolomowski. Yeah, yeah. and you won it uh for uh, an outstanding contribution in, in tandem with your producing partner and and husband stephen woolley is that right yes, you, you won it together yeah. For, yeah for the sort of various output of number nine films over the years yeah, I guess so. We never really got granular with them for their reasoning. We just accepted it yeah, as to take a contribution. We were like, please tell us exactly why. You know, we have done films in the States and we've done some studio films, but our key focus has been independent films. And mostly those films have been set in the UK. So it was, you know, it really was a total surprise when the letter came through. We actually thought it must be a hoax. And I'm not saying that because of false modesty, but you know, there's so many great people out there and it was just fantastic to be recognised in that way. But what you have done is make British films, as you say, they are set in the UK. I mean, yeah. If someone had said to me, oh, what, you know, what did Stephen and Liz do? What did Number Nine do? I would have said definitely indie films. I wouldn't have necessarily immediately thought almost always British, but, yeah. they, but they are really. I mean, they, they have a singular sort of uh, view on Britishness. Well, I think there's probably some films that have that are kind of iconic or that really stood out you know whether it's obviously back in the day which before i met stephen when he made mona lisa and company of wolves and and they were you know an absolute beginners they were seminal british films i mean company of wolves probably less so because it was a genre piece but certainly mona lisa felt like it was very groundbreaking and then the first film we worked on together was the crying game and wow uh, i didn't know you get you went back that far actually yeah oh, really oh, very far now jason it's about 30, oh, 30 yeah. you don't work it achievement jason I, you're, you're right it's not a lifetime achievement we must stress that 1992 was the crying game as far as i know which means you must have started working on it in 1990. yeah but we started working it was when scandal just finished so actually that wasn't the first film it must have been the miracle i'm wrong so it was yeah, 1988. So just after Scandal had screened in Cannes. Mm. And I remember the first thing I did was go over to see a cut of a film called Rosalie and the Lions, 
in Paris, which was something we had for distribution. But yeah. yeah, so I think there's some iconic ones and then going right up to obviously something like Made in Dagenham, which was a dramatic uh, telling of the Ford Dagenham women's strike at the Ford Dagenham factory. With a wonderful and, cast, Bob Hoskins and um, of course, Sally Hawkins. And Rose Pike mm. and Danny Mays. And yes, yeah, of my absolute favorite people. So I think probably that's why. And then, um, you know, we have Living coming up, which is a London set piece, which is really an exquisite film that we're super proud of that will come out this autumn. This is your latest, what's it called? Living, it's called. Living, yeah. I haven't seen that one yet, although I know it um, It has shown. Is it, was, it, was it Berlin, was it? Is that what it showed? No, it, it premiered at Sundance. Sundance, excuse me. Yeah, I knew somewhere cold and snowy and I wasn't there. Where, um, well, well, tell me about Living. So Living is a reworking of a Kurosawa film called Akuru, which means living. And it was a project that came from Ishiguru. And um, Stephen and I were somewhere and met Ishiguru and Stephen, he and Stephen started talking about a season that Stephen had programmed for the South Bank, which was on the back of the film that we made called um, Their Finest. Mm -hmm was called it was a season which was about um women in world war ii films british films oh yes because that because their finest was Gemma arterton and bill nighy and she was making films in, uh, under the sort of bombs uh, and, and it was about the blitz. role that you know women played a major role it suddenly were able to move into cinema during that time for all the obvious reasons and they were brought in to write the slush in the yeah, film that's right i love that film yeah, it was a great film and the season was really called Girls Like Us, was fantastic. And actually Ishiguru had watched that whole season in a, he had got all the DVDs. He tends to screen things. He's got a screen that he screens things on or got screeners for them. And so they had a long conversation about that and just bonded over a love of cinema. Um, and Ishiguru has an encyclopedic knowledge of British film. And so that, the idea came out of that encounter and it's written, the script is written by Ishiguro and it's directed by the really extraordinarily talented director called Oliver Hermanos, who directed the film called Moffy. Yeah, is he South African, isn't he? Yeah. 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 So that is, uh, stars Amy Lee Wood and um, Bill Nye amongst others. Beautiful. Look, I'm really looking forward to, to seeing yeah. it. Uh, and yeah. it's going to be a remake. Lots of, lots of credentials well, there. Yeah, it's definitely, it's a reworking of it. Because I know some people, it, you know, it's a frightening thing if you see you're taking on Kurosawa. And I think for us, that was why um, it was so gratifying to get those reviews out of Sundance. So we've got high hopes for that. So but you've I think... got this, this this film, Liz. So, I mean, you know, as I'm meeting the producer, how, how have you... Have you have you worked together on that? Do, are there some films that you do more of the yeah. production on that Stephen does less, and that sometimes you're you're sort of working tandem on something? Say something like Living. You say that Stephen started it with a conversation with Kazuo mm. Ishiguro. Um, does he come home and just sort of say, "Oh, I spoke to Kazuo. That, I had that Kazuo Ishiguro at the bar the other day, and we have come up with an idea. How do you how do you sort of build it together as a producer? Yeah, I mean, what happens is obviously we collaborate on everything. We work very closely, and we're a very small company you know fully independent and i guess the word would be boutique you know it's a boutique slate we only develop about between six and eight films at any one time because we're very hands-on throughout the whole process and a lot of those ideas are self-generated or certainly you know we work on from the ground up so what tends to happen is one or other of us will bring a story in so Either it will be a manuscript that someone has sent to us, like in the case of Mothering Sunday, that was a manuscript of the, a galley copy of the novel that came to us from film four. And there were other people who were bidding for it, but they had wanted us to do it. This is a Graham Swift novel, wasn't it? Before. Yeah, before. Graham Swift novel, yeah. Or, you know, uh, Carol was something that came because I met with the writer Phyllis Nage many years ago and she came in and pitched some ideas and one of them was a story about Mrs. Harris, which is a case in America of a headmistress who was tried for murdering her lover, High Tarnower. And I hired Phyllis to write that and ended up hiring her to direct it. We did an HBO one party called Mrs. Harris starring Annette Benning and Ben Kingsley. Um, Filler Baker Hall, Cloris Leachman. It's amazing, actually. Some phenomenal. I've heavy... seen it. I've seen it on your credits. Obviously, researching yeah, in it's, deep it's... for this. Um, yeah. And I thought, Mrs. Harris. I don't think I've seen that. 
it was a it's done as an, a one-off film for hbo that was nominated for everything going under the sun um it was great golden globes and saga you know uh but anyway phyllis wrote that and then during that i talked to her and she brought up patricia heisman's carol price of salt so what tends to happen is one or other of us will bring something in and then we will be the lead producer on that project, but constantly in conversation with the other about various things, whether it's something like, oh, what, what was that line producer that you worked with on that film? Would you recommend them for this? How did you get on with them? Um, discussing, you know, creatives. What do we think about bringing such and such a writer onto mm -hmm. something or such and such a director or a cast? So we'll talk to each other all the way through but one or other will be the lead producer on that project. The only one that we didn't work like that on was Made in Dagenham, was actually a radio program that Stephen heard. And then he said, I want you to listen to this. What do you think? And I listened to it and said, it's great, let's do it. And then we built that up with Kate Lawrence, who was our head of development at the time, who played a seminal role. She was fantastic. And that one, we split the production. I did the first half of the shoot and Stephen did the second. I mean, it worked well, I think. It's prob, yeah, no, it did work really well, but typically that doesn't happen. And the only other one was Colette, where we also kind of, we were co-produced that with Killer, who we've made quite a few, three this films. Christine Vachon, the legendary yeah, producer in, in New York. Butler. So we've, we've, you know, we've brought them on to two things and they've brought us on to Colette. So we, that one, we, we switched on and off. But yeah, typically it's just one or other of us. I always love it when you throw in a film, Liz, and you, you, you sort of say, oh, and then we'll Colette, and I think, oh God, I really like that one as well. And then I always think, oh God, I really like that one. They're very fond of your, of your you know, collected slate. Do you know what I mean? These films, they, they've somehow hit in, they become part of the landscape, I think, of British yeah. independent film. Oh, I'm really pleased to hear you say that. I thought, yeah, Kira Knightley was just, her performance in that I think is fantastic. You know, she played that role so well and um yeah i think they you know they're sort of budgeted in a medium range but i think that they really distinguish themselves with their proficiency and they look beautiful yeah. and they're beautifully you know put together and yeah we take real pride in in being very assiduous in nurturing them and looking after them and developing them and definitely hiring people and giving them the tools to kind of do the best version of their work and then we've been lucky enough to have long long long-term relationships with the greats like costume designer sandy powell and yeah because i was in your office the other day meeting the producer and um and i i loved i was looking at all your posters around the wall because you've got a nice big office now so you can stretch out with all your all your posters and yeah are they all like oh yeah yeah that's lovely on great expectations you did a lovely job on that there is an aesthetic that as a producing pair that you have established and i think that's kind of interesting that a producer can actually have an aesthetic people think people tend to attribute it to directors but i'm yeah. sort of detecting that there's a you know that you, you manage to get an, an artistic and creative impetus it out through your work too you know that's very well observed and very kind of you to say thank you i think it probably is about you know it's a collaborative form you know it's completely collaborative and you try and pull together the best crew in front of and behind the talent you know creative talent and behind the camera crew for that particular film and i i do think the adage you know you're only as good as the people around you really does hold true and there are some instances you know we have had instances in the past where we've hired like a great cinematographer and it just wasn't right on that particular film and that's quite interesting because you can have someone who's really fantastic but and it hasn't happened often maybe just a couple of times where you think oh yeah i understand why this particular grouping may not be quite right so i do think that it is about the director but it's about choosing the right team and making sure that that director is right for that project and is surrounded mm. by the right people how, for them. how do you know that a cinematographer for example this is quite intriguing to me um, how a cinematographer perhaps isn't working. I mean, yeah, presumably they're very competent at their jobs because you've hired them and those things are in focus and, the, you know, you'll get the, the, the rushes or the dailies are coming back, you know, that all that bit's taken care of. How do you sort of say it's not quite working as a cinematographer? I don't, I'm not asking you to name names or particular examples unless you want to. Not, or, you know, sometimes they haven't been in focus and that's from... Oh, right. No, I think it's really just about, it's about 
the conversation and the communication that happens in that collaboration. And, you know, you have some cinematographers who, but they work in different ways. You know, some use a lot of lights, some don't use so many lights. Some are super fast and quiet. Some work more slowly. Some, you know, it's, it's about a dynamic. It's any kind of a, a creative pairing and, and you just, you know, look, usually we get it right and that's fantastic. And certainly with Oliver Hermanus on Living, he introduced us to Jamie Ramsey, who had shot Moffy and some of Oliver's previous films. And Moffy is a stunning looking film. Mm. And we ended up working with Jamie on both Mothering Sunday and on Living. You know, he's now one of the leading cinematographers. I'm not saying that's down to us. His work with Oliver was stunning, but it was the first film, Mothering Sunday, and then Living, the first films he'd done in the UK. and. You know, he's a remarkable talent who was introduced to us, like I said, by Oliver. And they bring a certain light and they bring a certain aesthetic, certainly the Mothering yeah. Sunday. I mean, let's talk about Mothering Sunday as, as, as it's so recent as well. Uh, but it was at the Cannes Film Festival where it, where it premiered, the, the, the COVID hit one, I remember. Um, but you got a French director, Eva Husson, yeah. to come and direct, uh, uh, you know, a very British tale. Why, mm -hmm. why why, did you sort of take a chance on her? Obviously, she, she was a well-known and well-established director who'd come off a, a less successful uh, film, which I rather liked, actually, The Women of the Sun. Yeah, me too. I don't know why she yeah. got so brutalized by it. I thought it was really good. So brutalized. But, I, yeah, I mean... And you rescued I... her. Like, 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 like you say, you and Stephen bring in a project. He's like, I, I imagine you're like sort of cats in the garden when they bring in like a little wounded bird. Oh, look, yeah. I found Eva Husson. Shall we make a film with her? <laughs> yeah, you, you've, you know, that I know that has happened, happens to directors. Um, yeah, she was really brutalized for Girls of the Sun, it was. Yes, and I, yeah, it felt really quite extreme. And I think there are other things at play there, but that's probably another topic to get into. But I'd seen um, her film, um, Bang Gang, Gang Bang, Bang Gang, <laughs> and which I thought was a really strong first film and I saw Girls of the Sun in Cannes and then I was a governor for the Toronto Film Festival which is uh you know there's a, a group of um filmmakers who are chosen for this three-day intensive kind of workshop and I did that with Will Oldroyd and Ava's Girls of the Sun was showing there and she was one of the filmmakers that came to talk Leslie Nemes came to talk and Ava came to talk and we just spoke briefly to each other there. And I just had a feeling from seeing, we had only just got the rights to Mothering Sunday then. And I just felt that actually her particular sensibility, which was so clearly laid out in Girls of the Sun and in Gang Bang, like her visual artistry, the sensual nature of her filmmaking, her boldness when it comes to you know, exploring female pleasure and female gaze and all of those things that need to be on screen. And it's how you stop them from being co-opted into another space. Like, how do you express female sexual pleasure? Um, and I just thought that she really had the qualities as a filmmaker that would lend themselves to a really exciting version of Mothering Sunday. Not met like this before. No, madam. Good morning, Beechwood House. Jane, is that you? Yes, madam. The shall be leaving here for this picnic. I'll be on my own. 11 o'clock, not the back path, Jay, front door. I'm terribly sorry, madam, but you have the wrong number. We were definitely disappointed that it didn't get the recognition that we expected after it screened in Cannes, because the re reviews really were incredible. Um, which was a shame, but you know these things happen. So and things yeah, come it's still, it was still a very difficult time for cinema. I think you know yeah. independent cinema has taken a bit of a beating over the last couple of years, and maybe you know a film like yours, which is sort of at the higher end of that, uh, is one of those people weren't that audience was perhaps not flocking back to the cinemas yet when your when, when yeah. your film came out. I mean, you had a fantastic cast. You had you know you had you know the the the, the great and the good of British cinema. You had Colin Firth yeah. and, and Olivia Colman in there. 
yeah how, how do you get people like that you just you, you, you go and convince them they owe you a favor you've known them a long time it's a nice part yeah i mean colin we've worked with a couple times and josh actually i had introduced josh o'connor of course yes. yeah josh o'connor so i had introduced ava the first person i introduced her to was josh o'connor and that was pre-covid when we were in development and i said look you should really see god's own country he's amazing and i had had the um good fortune to sit opposite josh at a bafta dinner and it was really extraordinary because i'd seen god's own country but he's such a He's got so much, I hate to use the word charm because it's some, I don't know, somehow charm doesn't feel right, but he's just got such a fantastic spirit. He's got such a generous spirit and he's so, you know, smiley and so engaging. And it took me a second when I was sat opposite him to go, wait a sec, this is Josh O'Connor, the guy who's the young guy who's in God's own country. And I was just very impressed by him. You know, he was so smart and so affable and such a, obviously such a fantastic actor. And so I introduced him to Eva and she just thought he was fantastic. So he was attached quite early, although attached with a caveat, we got to, you know, we have to cast Jane. And then when lockdown happened and we were like, oh God, you know, what are we all doing? And everyone was working from home and there was this thing called virtual can and we thought what the hell does virtual can mean but we had the script you know alice birch had delivered the second draft and alice being alice who writes like an angel you know the script was a perfectly formed thing pretty much and i thought well you know i might as well try colin and try live it because they weren't big parts but it was lockdown and no one was working and they both read it very quickly colin read it and sent me the most wonderful text back and olivia's agent got back straight away and said she loves it and because no one was working but we had the script that we really felt was filmable because it didn't call for masses of extras it was quite contained it was in the uk so we sort of thought if there is a window, we'll be able to shoot this. And then who knew virtual can turned out to be a real success. And we sold the film worldwide because we had Josh and Colin and Olivia on board. And, you know, people, distributors feel that with number nine, there's a kind of confidence. They know they're going to get something of a certain caliber. Yes. And then I just became, some people say insane. If you ask Josh, he and his agent were like, well, I don't know what she's on, but I guess we'll just go with it. Cause I was like, no, no, we're going to be shooting this film. We'll be in pre-production in August. And I just had this kind of layperson's, you know, A-level biology. Well, the virus, when everyone's out in the summer, it's going to go down and we'll have to open up. I was just convinced. And I thought I knew that something was going to have to happen to kick production off and yeah. find a solution with insurers. I just was, I just thought that has got to happen because you can't just stall everything forever. And, and it did, you know, the production restart scheme came into being like literally at the 11th hour. And so we went into pre-production on August 6th and we, I think we were the first film to go from ground zero. Some films that had started, started up again, but we went from ground zero. So we shot, literally we wrapped a couple of day or a couple of weeks before the second lockdown. Yeah. So we just sort of squeezed it all in. And that was, yeah, I mean, you know, now to get cast, you know, the, the production bubble is showing no signs of bursting, which is a great thing, but also a, a super challenging thing, particularly for independents. So if it was now, we'd be hard pressed to get actors of that caliber to do yeah. roles that in terms of a page count were small, not in terms of their the way they resonate on screen and resonate within the narrative, but certainly the page count. So, so it's a really long-winded way of saying the upside of the downside of COVID was precisely that for us. That's interesting. So you take, I mean, as a producer, you take advantage of certain situations and and use the use the kind of runes uh, in a way, and sometimes just take a chance and sort of say, well, look, Colin Firth, he can't be busy because no one is, so yeah. he might be around to read this. You know that sort I of. Yeah, I think then it was definitely chasing a chance. I mean, I think as a producer, you know, it's risk. It's all about risk and chance. You have to take risks and, you know, they can be scary. They're scary and exhilarating. What's the biggest risk you've ever taken? I suppose the real risks would come down to financial situations where 
you know, closing, what's called closing the finance on a film as a protracted process. I mean, models have changed now because you've got streamers um, that fully fund, but in the independence, in the old days, the old model, which is still used, is that you would piece together the financing and that's a long discussion I won't go into, but you literally piece, put all these pieces of a puzzle and it is a bit like doing a puzzle and you're making them fit. And it generally takes between six and eight weeks once you've got those parties on board that make up 100% of the financing pie. It's about six to eight weeks of lawyers and documents being exchanged and haggling um, and negotiating over deal points on the financing. And you have to kind of, you know, to use a cheesy metaphor, sort of slap your baby on the back to make it breathe. And so you just have to go for it. And, you know, you start spending some of your own company money and thinking this has got to close, this has got to close. And that can be, or, and, you know, we don't have a lot of that because we're fully independent. So we really don't have reserves, but it can be quite a hairy place to be in only you know the crying game was particularly stressful in that regard like it's documented in a book we were literally taking money from the cash box at the scala cinema to fund the next day's filming that was really hairy and that was a project that a lot of people thought to quote back in those days was morally reprehensible because you know it was i know now it has been subject to a re-examination on its the politics of trans and i get that but you know that film was made 30 years ago mm. and so for what it did 30 years ago i would still argue that it really was radical but for some people radical men that's why it's still talking about that's why they're still talking about it yeah they're still talking about it and i you know our daughters have certainly had a very heated discussion with us about that and like we get that we really do get that but at the time it really was quite a breakthrough film with its gender pol- and politics you know yeah. oh yeah but, you know irish politics as well yeah you? the irish politics as well but that that film you know people really did throw the script back at us in in disgust anyway so yeah i guess the the risk things would be that where any you're like, tips we- for that little bit that moment where you've got all the pots of financing and you know and it, you're the BAFTA, you you're bafta winners an outstanding contribution to british cinema and you still have to kind of go to this pot of money here and this pot of money yeah. there and that one and you know you'll get a bit from bfi and a bit from other funders and it, it sounds to me that even you have to kind of go you know each time to to the sort of jigsaw puzzle board you know i think that even you of it all is really interesting and and one of the reasons that's great having a partner because i think you've got some, someone to share the highs and the lows with which is very important and you know sometimes you'll be in that same space together typically the peaks but when you're in the lows you might be in more and the other person is there to bolster you and i think the even you aspect of it like steven is always really good at reminding me like it's not different for anyone else and you know these problems exist no matter what the nature of your production obviously it's easier you know if it's a one-stop shop and fully financed but that will come with other pressures and other rigors and you know you look at a film like Some Dog Millionaire that was fully financed in a completed film and the story is now turned into, you know, like folklore, film folklore, but it was shown to a studio and who had financed it because their independent arm had closed during the production and so they had to show it to the big studio bosses and and they rejected it and straight, straight to DVD, you know, the producers managed to rescue it by going to another distributor but i think that shows that really it's an industry that no one really knows you know there's always the dark horse there's always something you believe in that other people don't and it will work and you have to keep your wits about you and you have to keep your head down and keep focused and keep your belief intact because there just are so many stories i mean some dog is just one you know lives of others is another which is a film that no one wanted to finance and then when it was finished it was rejected from every festival there's so many of those stories and so you just have to keep going i mean we are fortunate that we've reached a certain level of our career where we have got a fantastic team around us you know we work with a law firm sheridan's who do all our business affairs and legals and 
you know, and so you know you've got a great team and they will step in with the closing and we've got great relationships with distributors around yeah. the world. Do you let other people do their, their jobs? How much do you as a producer kind of get involved in, obviously you're, you're stronger at some things than, than others. You you're, you might be great at spotting a great literary property that, that is right for adaptation and that's your thing and relationships with authors, or you might be good at at, at, at putting finance together and, and, and negotiating deals with Hollywood agents, for example. We do everything. But I think that's just as much, I mean, and we love doing everything, we're across everything. And when I say we do everything, we do delegate and we do collaborate because I think that's important. And when I work with younger people, I'd say you have to learn to delegate. You know, if you can't delegate, you're never gonna be able to really fly. But we do do everything. And I think that's partly because we come from a place where that's where you had to do. I think it's very, very different. It's a different world now with younger producers and people work in different ways. Not that one way is any better than the other. But I think that one of the reasons that financiers, distributors like to work with us, it's because we do have a breadth and depth of knowledge that goes across financing, distribution, you know, script editing, production, working in the edit room with the director. And I think that that doesn't necessarily happen in the same way. It's a different business. And again, not to say any one way is better than another, but so, and, you know, even through the distribution, I mean, obviously Stephen came from distribution. So we will we're involved in that as well you know the distributors will show us images that we're thinking of using we'll have conversations about that have conversations about the campaign that's what producers do all day you've got like everything to do from the poster to the you know to to, to sort of seeing it in the into an independent cinema in you know, lewis or somewhere yeah. um, tell me about carol liz because I love it. What a great film, oh, a fantastic film that is. You know, and Kate Blake Blanchett and Rooney Mara are fantastic. But working with Todd Haynes, fantastic mm-hmm. filmmaker, or with Patricia Highsmith. But what what a fantastic production, and and, and what a sort of life it led as as a, as a movie for you. That's it, it. Seems to me that that's when it all goes right. You know what I mean? Yeah. When you get like, oh my god, like you wanted to see this on screen for so long, and it's not easy to get done, and it looked right, and the performances, and you got Kate Blanchett at her best. Uh, yeah. Do you just sit back and go? Ah, or was there a furious paddling underneath? Oh God, you know, that was really, really, really tough. That was really tough. And it had a very, you know, Phyllis had mentioned it to me when we were shooting Mrs. Harris and the rights in the novel were actually with another party and they had had them for quite a number of years. And the publisher who controlled the estate, Diogenes, when those rights came up, they just said, we're not giving them to an independent producer again. And I was like, oh, you know, I just said, listen, please just let me have lunch with you. Just, just let me have lunch. Like if you meet me and you're not into it, fine. And so I went over to Zurich and had lunch with two women um, from the publishing company. And they said, okay, we are open to the idea. What and did you so- say? What did you, what, what did you must've ordered brilliantly? lunch exactly. <laughs> absolutely brilliant. the bottle of wine that was necessary <laughs> yeah the bottle of wine no it was a really great lunch and but i was also aware that we had to close the deal really quickly and we had the support of um film four when tessa ross was there at the time and i remember i said i need to take your lawyer who's harry dixon who's just the most fabulous I know him. yeah he's terrific and I need to hire a lawyer in Switzerland. And Harry and I flew out and I'd hired this local lawyer in Zurich. And then we literally just sat in a room with a lawyer from Diogenes because I just had this feeling. So like, after the lunch, how long after the lunch is this? Pretty quickly after, I think it was a couple of weeks. We went back and forth on the deal of what we could offer. So from memory, that was a few weeks. And then- a This couple is in terms of like the option and the rights, exactly. Yeah, uh, the option and the purchase price. And then I just, thought right we just need to go over there I just said to Tessa that we just please just the money to fly over there to take Harry to hire this lawyer and we'll just sit in a room and close the deal because I just knew that people were going to be circling and it just had to be closed I mean it's amazing now that the whole Ripley you know the Ripley TV series is coming out on Showtime there's a documentary that's come out someone's optioned the rights to her diaries it seems like now as you know I know, like I like to think we were ahead of the game, even though obviously there had been plans to well, lay. There was plans to lay and Ripley before you, yeah. Ripley and yeah, plans. They're both, which are great films. Yes. I love them both. But anyway, so we closed that deal, and then it was quite, you know, we had the rights for 
we're just going into the third year and we got them made, but it was quite a checkered development process, you know. So you could you have this great moment where you, you know, you do the lunch and you see all the rights and you say, brilliant, I've got the rights and presume you, you, you pay for them up front, you know, the, an option fee or whatever. I don't know if you do that or Film 4 did that because well, you... We do it, yeah, development yeah. budget yeah. with Film 4. Always, see, that's, that's smart. Yeah, I mean, before. Todd Haynes was actually, he was on another film and we had, you know, we were struggling to find a director and we had one director, they dropped out. We had another director that didn't work out. And I was actually on the phone with Christine Fashion, who I talked to a lot. And we were both, you know, commiserating with each other because we had just, you know, lost another director and Todd's film had just gone down. And there was just this kind of silence. And then this light bulb went off somewhere in the middle of the Atlantic. And then when Todd came on board, it all came together. But it was very difficult still to get the money you, we You needed. weren't planning on offering it to Todd Haynes until you were talking to his well, longtime he, producer. He, he was on a film. You know, he had a film that was going into production. So it was only when we had that conversation that both of these things had just happened, while, which is why we were talking to each other. We were commiserating. Yeah. With, the misery of independent filmmaking and out of that you know the upside of that downside was carol but it you know really was very tough to raise the money that we needed for the film that was really hard what do you need for a film like that because it's period or i mean yeah it was period and also you know it was period it's shot in cincinnati ohio where we weirdly had made a film 25 years prior which was called rage in harlem Oh, that's Himes novel. Yes, with Danny Glover. Danny Glover and Forrest and Robin Givens and and yeah, I, fantastic. I haven't seen that film for ages. I love that film. And I like again, you know, that was super ahead of its time. It's a great film, but when we were trying to find a location for Carol because we couldn't afford to shoot in New York, and I was just and Todd had made I'm not there in Montreal because some people were saying, oh, you can shoot Montreal for New York, and I'd gone to look at Toronto and. The way that Todd wanted to shoot the film, he just knew that he was going to be so restricted in Montreal and Toronto, you know, because you can get certain blocks, but you can't, when you see the film, the relationship between the exterior and the interior is so crucial, you know, riffing on on Sol Leiter's use of reflections, mirror, blah, blah, blah. So, so blah, um, blah, blah, the aesthetic no, of the, the, the award-winning aesthetic. I say edit that out. I don't know why I said blah, blah. That was horrible. Erase blah, blah, blah. I just feel like I'm talking so much. That's why. Because I love this film. And, you know, like, I, what I love is that you you remember piecing together. It's fascinating to me how the producer drives every single little bit of it. Todd Haynes wants to make something based on Soul Lighter's photography. And you have to go and write, right, how do I do that best? How do I help him achieve that? Rather than say to him, oh, shut up, just shoot it as you as you shoot no, it well, you I just to. and it, this is also the internet because I was talking and I was like oh man you know we shot Rage in Harlem in Cincinnati and we used it for New York and it's 1950s and I wonder how much it's changed and so I was googling as I was having a conversation and I was looking at images and I thought oh you know uh, that part of downtown Cincinnati looks sort of very well preserved architecturally and also, Ohio had introduced a really good tax rebate that was on the above and below the line. So I thought, okay, this looks like the answer. So I arranged a recce and um, we started in Cleveland and that really didn't work. And I remember the line producers with us just like, ah, I don't think, you know, Cincinnati's not going to work. And I thought, well, I'm sure it is. And we arrived there with Todd and it was just so fantastic because he just went into this space of a kind of visual ecstasy. You know, in those days he just had his viewfinder. But when I observed how he responded to what the architecture of downtown Cincinnati presented to him and you just saw him physically and mentally just come alive, I just saw in that moment, okay, this is it. And we actually canceled the Montreal leg of the trip um, much to the dismay of the film unit, the film council there. Yeah, so we set it up there and it was just it was just tricky. It's a period film and also, you know, when you're making an independent film with the likes of Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara and Sandy Powell and Ed Lachman and Judy Becker and Todd Haynes, you know, those aren't can't rookie. Stick, can't stick them in the premiere in. No, it's not, it's not just that. I mean, you're right, although 
you know they could. they're probably all right they, they were amazing <laughs> i mean kate and rooney are just extraordinary the dedication just to the craft and to the film and to the task at hand none of that just don't bring any of that stuff to set at all they were just incredible to work with as is todd they all were but what i mean is they have reached the top of their artistic craft for a reason and you want them to be able to deliver that so there's no point in hiring them unless you can provide them with the tools that they need to do the thing that they do so brilliantly yeah. well i mean you do need to keep the budget in mind you absolutely do but you also like there's no point in having these people if you don't say i'm going to do everything i can to give you what you need whilst being fiscally responsible and that was a tall order i mean that's why typically line producers you know if we come and go oh well, we've got this you know triple oscar nominated winning cinematographer and costume designer and better if it's an independent film the line producer is always like ah you know have you thought about getting a newbie because it's you know typically less demanding but sandy powell's costumes in that are just exquisite as, as they are in most things obviously although obviously the best the best piece of costume in in, in carol uh, is the key bit where where uh, kate blanchard turns and says like the hat and it's uh yeah. you know it's a christmas it's a christmas pixie hat <laughs> so... yeah, 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 yeah that's great when she says that doesn't she yeah <laughs> i love christmas wrapping presents and all that and then somehow you wind up overcooking the turkey anyway Done. Where'd you learn so much about train sets? Oh, I read. Too much, probably. That's refreshing. Thank you. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. I like that. I love, I mean, you know, it's just a gorgeous feeling. Even the cars are gorgeous in, 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 in Carol. You know yeah. they can be expensive, and yeah. then you see then you see that through all the way, and you, and it, and you know when do you know, Liz, that you've got something good, or do you ever know? Well, I could see when we were filming that it was, you know, ravishing, and also I just you know Todd is one of the great living filmmakers yeah. and I, I have to say without wanting it to sound sour grape so it was really devastating to me when he wasn't nominated as best director because it's just such an exquisitely directed film you know every shot is so impeccably and beautifully crafted on you know very limited means and times I mean we shot the film in 35 days you know it was really fast and demanding but yeah it was ravishing but we were so you know the production was very tough and for various other reasons we shot on super 16 the only lab was in new york there was a problem with the focus which turned out to be the way the lens was mounted you know these days there's only one lab in new york they only do a night bath they don't do a weekend bath you have to break off the film get it on a plane fly it back to new york so it, it was lots of reasons it was super super challenging um, especially when they had the focus issues in the first three days, which really upset the schedule. Right. What, but, so you couldn't use you couldn't use the first, anything in the first three days. Well, in the end, we could, but you're getting calls back from the lab saying it's soft and you can't go to the lab. You know, we couldn't stop and have Ed fly to the lab and figure out what the problem was. And so, uh, anyway, it was really challenging. Oh no, I love all that. But we sorted it out. And yeah, I think the first time was we had a screening in the cussing room of the Phil film and we realized it was special. And we had, you know, Todd, like I think the great directors that I've worked with are very keen to screen the film throughout the post-production process. So during the editing, we would start by screening it to 30 people you know, just friends and family. And then you'd open that up to 40 people, then 50 people, then 100 people. And it's a really great when you have a filmmaker who wants to work that way. And I'm not saying you're doing the formal NRG, which is National Research, Research Group screenings, but you're having screenings where you just being in the room, you absorb, even in that silence, how the audience is responding 
to the movie and you see it through the eyes of that audience. And you're I taking mean, notes all the way through saying, they laughed here, there's a sigh here, there's a palpable yeah, tension here. And, you know, and Todd would be watching it with his editor, Alfonso, and yeah, you really do get a sense of things and you see it from a perspective of an audience watching it. You just feel the vibe in the room. And we then did have a, a kind of marketing screening when this film was finished that sort of went through the roof. So yeah, we figured then, but it's still nerve wracking, yeah. you know, the can screening. I, I just remember watching it in Cannes and this happened to me before when we've had films in Cannes is it just suddenly just is like a collection of images that pass in front of you. And you can be sitting there having this out of body experience where you think, wait, none of these things go together. You're like, what, what were we doing in the cutting room? I just don't understand it. Which of course is not the film at all. It's just the experience and the anxiety because it's the first time you show it to the world and to be showing it there. But it was when the standing ovation happened and then you know, we got the reviews from there. That was really exhilarating. Yeah, I was there. I was there. I remember it very well. But and I must say to you that I thought that the images seemed to be fitting together very beautifully. But <laughs> you're probably like going, "Oh my god, I got so much." You're you're thinking of other producer things in your head, like we've got a party to organise. Is that going to happen? And then we're going to sell the film and all this, and the reviews going to come out. What's Jason going to say? Because I know that's a big exactly. thing. Exactly. What's all your, that stuff going what's on? What's your moment that you've done something as a producer where you've stuck your neck out for something or you argued for something or you 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 really did it and then as as a producer you saw it happen and you thought i'm so proud of myself for sticking up for that one your sort of proud production moment i mean obviously you know they're all films really i mean carol was definitely one i also think to be with ava at the screening of mothering sunday when it got that reception and we got the key reviews in the key broadsheets um other than one exception but with the key reviews that we got and to feel you know she was so she and her editor and i i really liked her editor so much it was a great collaboration the three of us had during post-production but they were really deeply traumatized by that experience of girls of the sun yeah. i mean it was a phenomenally hostile response I hadn't realized the extent of it until we went back again and I could see just physically see physically how nervous they were about she must it. must be back quite triggering because I'd interviewed her yeah. after Girls of the Sun had been canon and came to London where we were much sort of more and she she gave me one of the best interviews I've ever done with the director where she was like it was like a war zone I was with war photographers who said it was more brutal being on the can red carpet after that screening than yeah. it was running the gauntlet in you know in Kandahar you know and they weren't joking you know she was so I think she, she was she very was, bruised and triggered. She be triggered. was very, very bruised by that. And I, I, that really meant a lot, especially for, you know, not that I want to be reductive at all about directors, but, you know, there are still so few women directing films and Ava is one of them. And so to be there with a film directed by a woman who had been so vilified previously and to have her see her confidence come back again and to have played a part in restoring that and saying to people you know this is a director of note um and we had some really great supporters you were one i mean robbie collins wrote some great pieces about the film and anyway yeah are you as a, as a female producer you know there are there are a, a few quite a few film, female producers again probably not enough and not as many you know not enough female female filmmakers do you see yeah, not that your role is, but do you, you know, what can you do to increase those chances? And I, I know you've sat on a countless women in film panels and all of those things. And I'm sure you would wish the day that that didn't have to happen would come sooner rather than later. Although I'm not sure it will. I think you still have to keep championing yeah. and fighting. Do you, do you find that as part of your, as part of your fight? Or do you think, you know, I just want to get the film made and whoever's the best talent to make it makes it? Well, I think it's both. I mean, obviously you want to, you know, we got a lot of flack on Made in Diagonum for not hiring a woman to direct the film. And, you know, we had sent it, I mean, this, that's quite a while ago now. So, you know- Nigel part, Cole, was it in the first? In yeah, the part of you is sort of, you know, we want to hire the best person to direct the film, but actually, yeah. no, I definitely have working with women directors at the front of my mind. And we have, 
you know, we've got a project in development with Marianne Elliott and a project in development with Carrie Cracknell and a project in development with a uh, young French director, Fleur Foutinet. And they are all excellent, excellent directors. I mean, Marianne and Carrie, well, Carrie's just done one film, but this will be their first, you know, foray into independent features and Fleur has really made a name for herself in music videos and commercials so yeah excited to be working with those three I mean the landscape has changed it hasn't changed enough TV has provided many more opportunities for women and you're still doing the independent film space yeah or you, or you go in you go in streaming like everyone else no I mean we would definitely work with the streamers it isn't it just hasn't happened yeah. yet um, we definitely would. Is, yeah. Are you confident enough that the independent film space will revive itself? I mean, you know, you've been through. A, well, I don't mean to remind you, but you've got the outstanding contribution BAFTA, and it's not a lifetime achievement award. But we, we want to go back to the eighties already. <laughs> so you've been through a few iterations, and Stephen certainly has been through. You know, independent cinemas are going to close. The Scala's got the re- yeah, yeah, leaky yeah. roof. DVD's going to kill it all. You've been through yeah. so many of these iterations, and you're still in that independent film space. Are you hopeful that that it will survive and it will mutate and it will change, and people will still be going to the cinema? Yeah, I think so. I was just reading um, Charles Gantz, if you get that, the box office roundup. And and certainly with them, he was saying the month of June is at the pre-pandemic, the 2019 levels. And, you know, obviously Elvis is performing really well. The Revilius documentary has done incredibly well, which is really encouraging to see. That's actually, you know, entered number one as a, as a, as a doc. So, yeah, I think we really believe it will come back and you know i i hope that we're not luddites when we say that the experience of going to see a film on the big screen in a dark room where there are not distractions of the mobile phone and the doorbell and the kettle and the toaster and which you know i mean asif kapadia spoke about it recently and i thought it was so fantastic and honest of him saying you know when i'm at home you just my phone's there you know it's really hard i like to go to the cinema and we're working with a young writer who's fantastic actually alice birch introduced us to that working on a tv series and i met with her the other day and she just said you know i don't have a screen in my house like a big tv screen because I want going to see things on a big screen to be an experience. I want to go out of the house and go to the cinema and go into a darkened room and see things on a big screen. And I do think that's true. I do think that it is a new environment where lots of things come, you know, it's if you can just press a button and get things at any time you want to watch them and you're not having to coordinate schedules and get public transport and get wet. You know, <laughs> Yeah, and the price point is an issue for younger people yes. in this month. You know, I know there's various things being discussed about zero VAT on tickets for British independent films. And, you know, there's very initiatives, various initiatives that have been put in place by cinema chains, and which is great. So there are definitely things that need to be worked out there. But I really think that it's an experience that is not replicated in the same way by watching things at home. And that doesn't mean to say that watching things at home is bad no, and it but provided access in a meaningful way for people. What advice would you give someone like me who is you know, schooled in the independent British film space? That's what I love, that's what I grew up in, that's what I know, that's why I have some opinions that I listen to and people that I know, like yourself. But as a producer coming into it, people keep saying, oh, well, you know, should be doing telly, or that sounds like a telly. And you're like, no, but I want, I want it to be in the cinema. What, what does the material have to have that therefore makes it cinema? It's, it can't just be about, oh, I'm going to go out tonight rather than stay in. I'm going out for a certain reason because the film that I'm going to go and see demands that I go and see it in those uh, conditions that you've just described. It, it, there's something about the film that makes me want to see it in that situation rather than press a button at home. Yeah, and again, I think that that's what you've said is as an urgency, you know, does the story, is it a story that people, you know, is this really something that I want? I want to see it. I think it's fantastic. And is, will other people, it's, you know, the filmmaker that realizes that story is visual images on the screen. Do they really have a voice that they're going to bring to the material that will elevate it? Everyone talks about elevated material, but I think, you know, who are the cast that you bring to that? who's going to be exciting and you know and we see really 
many exciting things coming on to, to cinema screens that work. But yeah, it's definitely competitive from TV because TV is, you know, in a golden age and there's some really, really spectacular things on television. But, you know, I think what people realize with a price point is then people are realizing, well, hang on, I've got so many subscriptions to so many different platforms. It's actually costing me a lot of money. Um, so then maybe actually choosing something that you want to see in the cinema is, is not such a bad idea. But also I, I was sorry, I'm sort of riffing here, but I was listening to a late night um, TV show on uh, Radio 5 Live, not radio show, not TV show. And it was about midnight. I don't know what it was. You probably know. It was like a film, someone talking about TV and films. and. Well, they didn't ask me on. <laughs> it was a review show. It was kind of cool, but they were talking about Stranger Things. And yeah. I had through my ignorance, I should have known, but I hadn't really clocked that the final episode of Stranger Things is just over two hours long, isn't it? I, d I should know. Again, I don't know. I know they make Kate Bush for number one again. Yeah, I know Kate Bush. So it's over two hours long. And we went to the launch of Paramount Plus and they're actually talking about single films. So then you're thinking, oh, so now these TV series are actually the final episodes are films. They're film running lengths. And I thought, well, that's really interesting because people talk about, oh, the attention span of these young people and blah, blah, blah. And you think, well, if you're actually having a final episode, which is like a film, that's probably no bad thing because the kind of addictive nature of half hour, half hour, 50 minutes or whatever, you know, the episode, next episode is starting in three seconds, yes. kind of gorge or I do, which I love. Um, I don't know, I thought maybe these things moving closer is a good thing. Maybe they feed into each other and support each other. Yeah, and there will I think they're different play. storytelling, uh, images and impulses. You know, I like I like a film to have a beginning, middle and an end. Um, mm. I really do, which they don't on yeah. telly anymore. They have another episode starting in three seconds. So I do like, I do like the old fashionedness of that. And I'm not saying it's old fashioned. I just think it, it, it's another way of telling a story and, and, and bringing a story to a close. And that's very satisfying. Mm. Um, Liz, I'm going to let you go. It's been fantastic talking to you about your, your amazing films oh, and to get so sort of deep into them with you as well and living them. I feel like it's sort of living with, living, hauling myself up the production oh. mountain every time we start and just listening to you. Um, it's such a long way to go. The summer is upon us. What does a film producer do over the summer if they're not filming? Well, for us, it'll be getting a couple of scripts, two that go into production this year and two next year, just pushing those along. Because, you know, it's that's like... like pushing things from development into production and actually you know ideas are cheap it's actually making the ideas into something so just you know as my brother said to me a lot of it is just about getting out of bed in the morning <laughs> and pushing the needle forward on something every day a little bit yeah. right so there's a moment where you go all oh, right we've got the script it's a good idea now i've got to make this happen and, and, and yeah. become a production so there's every single day there's a sort of new stage to these things i'm learning yeah, please yeah. God, please well, God. Well, you know, we're, we're looking forward to your ventures. Um, and thank you so much for inviting me on. And yeah, good luck with your productions. Thank you, Elizabeth Carson. It's been brilliant talking to you. And do you know what? I think I might rewatch Carol soon. I, <laughs> I haven't seen it for ages and uh, it's so beautiful. Like wow. that. Oh, well, thank you, Jason. Elizabeth Carlson there. Thank you so much for joining us on Meet the Producer. What did I learn from talking to Liz? Mm, well, that a producer starts from scratch every time. Even at her rarefied level of success, the money is impossible to come by. And every day feels like hard work and that there are highs and lows in every journey. Inspirational as Liz and Stephen Woolley's achievements are, obviously, it still feels quite daunting playing in the same pool as people like them. Although, of course, they both started out somewhere. Stephen Woolley, I know, started as in the Scala Cinema, you know, doing the tills there and getting the Cioras ready. So, you know, you've got to learn on your way up. What I did love, though, was Elizabeth's clear passion for getting things underway, for finding solutions along that way and for thinking around the box and for taking chances, even after all this time, on spotting new talents, championing new voices and giving them a platform to raise their game on, you know, getting a good first film and then giving them a really decent framework for that second film to really kick on. Also, I learned I can't wait to see her new film, Living. Thanks then to Liz Carlson, of course, and to the Production Guild of Great Britain and the British Film Commission. The PGGB is the UK's leading membership organisation for those working in film and TV drama production. 
It represents professionals working in a range of fields, including production, assistant directing, accounts, location management, VFX and post-production. It provides members with industry advice, training, networking, seminars and a brilliant podcast now. And its availability service provides information on members' availability for work to heads of department seeking crew for UK and international film and TV productions. Find out more at www.productionguild.com where you can also find this series of podcasts, but you can also get them by subscribing on your podcast platform provider so you never miss an episode of Meet the Producer. Do join me for the next episode of the Production Guild of Great Britain's Meet the Producer when I'll be joined by Rupesh Parekh to discuss his career in television, including his dark materials, Poldark and the new series of Willow.